so I've got, I'm going to be kind of all over the place for a, a little bit tonight. We're going to be in a, I'm going to read a psalm to begin with. It's kind of setting the stage for the message for tonight. And then we're going to be in, in of all places, Leviticus for a moment tonight. We're going to be in Genesis for a moment tonight. And, uh, and if we have the time, we're going to be in Matthew for a moment tonight. And so, uh, too much. Okay, all right, I'll back it off. No Matthew, just le- all Leviticus then, Dan, just for you. We'll throw in a little numbers and it'll be great. So, <laughs> but we're going to start off with this psalm. I'm not going to talk about the psalm. Um, I'm just going to read it. Psalm 94. The Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, judge the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see The God of Jacob takes no notice. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people, you fools. When will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? The Lord knows all human plans. He knows they are all futile. Blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law. You grant them relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not reject his people, for he will never forsake his inheritance. Judgments will again be founded on righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? who will take a stand against evildoers. Unless the Lord had given me help, I would have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said, my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Can a corrupt throne be allied with you? A throne that brings misery by its decrease? The wicked band together against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my fortress. And my God, the rock in whom I take refuge, he will repay them for their sin. And he will destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. This is going to seem like a strange segue, but hospitality. Hospitality in our country has become quite an industry, which is kind of peculiar. It's kind of a beast. I was looking at numbers this last week, and between bouts of sickness, you don't want to hear about that, though, do you? Um, and, uh, and, and the hotel industry alone, just that part of hospitality industry, the hotel industry alone in 2015 brought in, in the United States, $189.5 billion pretty big number. I was kind of surprised. And I was really surprised when I looked at then the worldwide number for the hotel industry. So the whole, including the U.S. industry, is $493.76 billion. 
So the whole thing is 493.76, and 189.5 of that is in the United States. That's crazy. We apparently travel and pay a lot for the places we stay in this country. That's, that's, that's weird, isn't it? That's a huge, huge number. Tom, can you check those numbers for me? <laughs> I almost called you. I'm like, does that sound positive? Could that possibly be right? So I, here's the deal, though. Like, I think that that's weird. I think that that's weird that we spend that much money on, on hospitality. And I think it's really weird that we have a hospitality industry. Like, how have we industrialized hospitality? How has that become a way to, like, make an income, to extort money from people, if you will? How does... How does that how does that happen? But for what it's worth, I'm not here to uh, to smear the hospitality industry. There's really, at the end of the day, nothing entirely wrong with the concept of space available for short-term rent, right? Like if that's what we're talking about, that's 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 fine, right? Like space available for short-term rent, a night, a day, a week, a month, whatever. Like I have to be realistic. I manage an RV park, and, uh, <laughs> and so. I can't, we're part of that very small part of that 189.5 billion, very tiny little piece. But nonetheless, my, my point isn't to like smear that whole notion, right? I'm simply here to talk about the like in framing that happens in our minds concerning the concept of hospitality in a culture that has embraced hospitality in the terminology of hospitality as an industry for profit. So like, what is it about hospitality and the terminology and the idea that's become like narrowed down or we put blinders on just inframed in our mind when it comes to hospitality as it's related to this industry? So like here's some of the things that I think that we, we, when we hear the word hospitality, particularly when we're talking about it in our culture as a whole, these are some of the things that we might think about. Like as it's related to finding a place to stay, short term wise, that it's easy, that it's easily accessible. People are spending that much money on it. It mustn't be too hard to drive into a town and find a place to stay, right? And that you, when you do that, when you're looking for a place, you pay for it, you know? Whatever the going rate is, what are we paying now for a night, Holly? We put up people in hotel rooms regularly, and it's like 50 bucks a night at least, right? Up to $99 a night for, a two, for, for two, two, two people in one room. That, that's quite a bit for one night, right? So... Those are some things that I think we think when it comes to this short-term stay in the hospitality industry is that it's easily accessible and you pay for it and that you should be able to pay for it, right? If you're, you're out of town and you have to play, stay someplace, you should just you should be able to find a place and pay for it yourself and no big deal. And that hospitality then, when it comes to that aspect of hospitality, having a place for people to stay, offering a place for people to stay, it's kind of unnecessary for us to show other people hospitality in that form because, well, I mean, there's a hotel down the street, right? And you can pay for it. So go pay for it, get your spot, and get out of my house. And, and okay, and that's another thing, is that oftentimes it's like decentralized from households, the idea of hospitality. Like, it's not something we associate with, like, how we run our homes. You know, in the ancient Near East, people, and people still do this today in different parts of the world, many parts of the world, they have a room dedicated to just keeping people who come to your town to stay overnight. The whole, the whole place that is just a room set aside that this is what you did with that room. Well, we've become fairly impersonal with it then too, right? You can go down and get to the place in the Motel 6, 
and uh, and and get out of my house, and uh, and it's all good. And so there's like not a real personal connection with this idea of hospitality, often, oftentimes. And if it does come into our households, it's simply like a nicety, right? Like when we strip all of these like actual giving a person a place to stay contexts of hospitality, and, and many of you are probably sitting there thinking like, well, I, I talk about hospitality as it relates to like having company, and, and this is what we're getting to. It's just nicety. It's just being nice to people when they're in your home. It's not actually going above and beyond and really offering people a place to stay or going out of your way to sacrifice something for somebody else to be comfortable. It's just kind of a nicety, like, oh, well, we put out some tea and we some cookies and we had a very nice little time and it was very friendly and, like, you were very hospitable. Thank you for your hospitality. So nice. But there's not, like... In our American concepts of hospitality, there's not much risk in that, right? Like, there's really not much sacrifice in that. It's like, especially when you're the kind of person that puts the good cookies away when the company comes over, right? <laughs> I mean, we don't do that. I'm just like, we don't know. I mean, we would never do that. <laughs> Honey. The whole concept of hospitality has kind of been detached from its biblical roots. And I think we need to try and maybe reattach it. Biblical hospitality is a basic requirement for a righteous person. And hospitality is this bigger notion of welcoming people into your country or into your town or into your home who do not normally belong there. And not just welcoming them in, but caring for them, sacrificing for their behalf, on their behalf, while they are there. And it's, it's not a nicety. I mean, it's nice when you're nice, don't get me wrong, but it's just not a nicety. It's, it's a matter of safety, hospitality. It's a matter of justice. It's a matter of protection. Hospitality in most of the world and throughout most of history is a matter of life and death. Not a matter of putting out the good cookies and the bad cookies. And it's a way that we are called to, as individuals, as people in communities, and as people in countries. Hospitality is an expression of God's love. The centrality of hospitality runs all the way through the scriptures. For example, Leviticus 19, 33 to 34. Can anybody quote that for me? You've got to watch it. Probably somebody could. One of, speak with me, Eric. <laughs> When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. (laughs) 
Yeah, right. I know exactly. You gotta watch it these days. I'll tell you, that's for sure. We're gonna get into that, maybe. I've already said that numerous times hospitality is not just a nicety. It's not just being nice to people, inviting them in for an afternoon. It's a matter of life or death. It's a matter of justice. A matter of care for the vulnerable and the powerless. Repeatedly, the scriptures demand care for three people, three groups of people. The widow, powerless, vulnerable. Orphan, powerless, vulnerable. And the foreigner, or the alien, not the green guy with the little antenna. Right? <clears throat> powerless, the vulnerable. These were all the vulnerable people amongst them, and this has not changed <laughs> today. In the majority of the ancient world and much of the world today, there were no hotels and motels. There may have been one here or there in some major city. And there still might be in some towns, and there certainly are in the United States for the industry that it is, right? But if you were a foreigner traveling, you had to simply rely on other people's kindness. You had no rights. You were at great risk wandering into a town, hoping somebody was going to take care of you, put you up, feed you. You were vulnerable. You were simply, again, relying on other people's love, their kindness and generosity. They were looking out for you. You walk in just totally open to somebody taking advantage of you. And it's worth considering that there were many, and there are many reasons to be a foreigner in a foreign land or a foreigner in a foreign city. You could have been a business person traveling from town to town in the ancient Near East trading things. Right? So you would be vulnerable still as somebody that was a business person traveling from place to place trading your goods. You could have been a foreigner in a foreign land because you're dealing with things like rejection at the hands of your family. Sometimes you will find that people who were women, sorry, not just people in general, women were put away by their husbands, and they had to find a place to go to be. They were highly vulnerable. They would almost qualify as a, both a, a foreigner and a, a, a widow, even though they're divorced potentially in this case, or put away by their husbands. They're, they could be dealing with re rejection. They could be, and we hear this one a lot, people are, are foreigners in a foreign land because they're escaping famine. There's a famine in their homeland, and so they got to go find some place to, to find enough food to survive. People dying along the way, trying to journey to get some place where they can maybe have enough food, relying on the kindness, the hospitality. Is this painting a little bigger picture of hospitality for you? Right? Finding a place where you can find hospitality, find a place to go, a place to rest your head, a place to get something to eat. And of course, another very common one was people being a foreigner in a foreign land, fleeing tyranny. Of course, if the, if, the, if the people and the government were good, who were, who were supposed to be receiving those, they would. They care for them. Because some cultures, and Israel is repeatedly called, again, I can't make this point strong enough, to, to care for these people, because like, everybody is God's people, right? 
Everybody is made in God's image. There aren't like some people that aren't God's creation, right? I mean, sometimes I think we misunderstand that, and the church has misunderstood that. I think sometimes the people of Israel in the biblical narrative misunderstood that. It's like, we're God's people, they're not God's people. <laughs> so we don't have to be nice to them, they need to be nice to us. And God is saying the whole time, no, 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 that's not the way it works. I've called you out to be a people, to, to seek and love and bring glory to my name and to uh, be a light to those Gentiles, those nations around here. So unlike how Israel was called to be, most cultures would prey on vulnerable travelers. Again, because they were easy targets. We, as God's people, can do nothing of the sort. We can't look past the needs of people in our world. We can't look at people as easy targets. In Leviticus, God reminds these people that he's talking to here that they once were those people. Israel was once those people, fleeing famine, finding themselves in Egypt, finding themselves forgotten, though received at one time, now oppressed by a new dictator, who was taking advantage of them because they were foreigners in a foreign land. They cried out to God and he heard them. While they were first received, they cried out because they weren't. They were being oppressed and ravaged and brutalized and exploited and worn out and used up in this foreign land. And God says, don't forget where you come from. Don't forget that you were once those people Take care of people that are like that. God's people were to remember their brutal treatment. And they were, ha- they were supposed to have an entirely different way about them, about how they interacted with people, about how they saw and responded to people around them in need, people who were powerless, people who were vulnerable. This heritage goes back even farther than Leviticus in the Scriptures. Even before God's deliverance of the Hebrews out of Egypt, there is at the center of what it means to be in relationship with with God and at the center of this concept of goodness and righteousness, the call to hospitality. This is truly what the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is all about. I said we were going to go to Genesis. And bear with me, because there's a little bit to read here, all right? I want to read this for you, because this is a story that is unfortunately taken and usurped for a particular point, and it's not the point that the text should originally be understood to uh, be dealing with, the point that the text originally should be dealing with. I'm going to start all the way back in chapter 18. I'm going to read through 19, and I'm going to ask a few questions. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. This is Abraham, that Abraham, the Abram guy that was renamed Abraham, that guy, you know, like father of faith kind of guy, that Abraham. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When When he saw them, 
he hurried from the entrance of his tent to the meeting, and he bowed low to the ground. So three guys come walking up, right? He sees them. He lays down to the ground. He bows down to the ground before them. He said, if I have found favor in your... So these guys are strangers, right? He doesn't know these guys. If, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and then you may, wa- then, then you may wash all your feet and rest under this tree. Let me go get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. This is going to take a little while, right? (laughs) It's going to take a little while longer yet. He ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. That's a little bit of preparation going on there, right? And he's going way out of his way for these people that he doesn't know. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah had all, were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, now we're starting to discover that this might be somebody other than just three strangers, right? But keep in mind, Abraham doesn't know this up until that point. These are just three dudes that walk up on, his, on him like under, under a tree, okay? But he's starting to get a better idea. Wait a second, what's going on here? Then the Lord said to Abraham, oh, sorry. I will return, um, I'm jumping down to verse 14. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. I love that. This is so good. <laughs> when the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham? What I am about to do, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on this earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, that their sins so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went down toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away with the sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it all away? and not spare the place for the sake of 
50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not judge all of the earth? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous people is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He's bold. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up and met them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did not go, that, that they did not go with him and enter, sorry, did go with him and enter his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had all gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to me, to us, so that we can have relations with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Stop right there. What do you think is the primary sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom, particularly in this case. What do, you, what do you think it is? Let me ask you a few questions. What did Abraham do for the three visitors? Yeah, and it is more specifically, what was the first thing? Yeah, he gave them some water to wash their feet. This was like common hospitality language. Sometimes you'll even find servants washing people's feet for them. This is like you've been out, you've been walking, you've been trudging down a dirty trail all day long, and how nice it is to kick back and wash your feet. Relax. Oh, take a deep breath. And then, of course, he goes on to make them a meal, to slaughter a, a calf, go way out of his way to provide for these three travelers whom he did not know who they were at first anyway. Again, I can't overstress this notion of washing feet 
as key terminology of hospitality, of receiving somebody, of bringing somebody in, of caring about somebody. I mean, even when you just think about the fact that water itself isn't an easy thing to get your hands on, always in that culture. And here you're going to offer some to some strangers that wander in, taking care of them, letting them wash their feet. When the two angels are sent into the city, what did they go to find out? Went to find out how they were going to be treated. How, how bad is the outcry? I'm going to send a couple of strangers into Sodom and see how bad the outcry is. Is it going to be as bad as I thought? Will they be received? Will they be rejected? And how about Lot? Where was Lot? The only real righteous person in this whole story. Where was he? He was sitting at the gate. Why in the world would Lot be sitting at the gate? Because Lot knew what the people of Sodom were like. Lot is sitting at the gate because he's waiting for some strangers that are vulnerable to walk in. And he's probably seen this happen over and over and over again where strangers come to town and the whole town is like, let's go take advantage of these guys. They're vulnerable. They can't protect themselves. Ha-ha! And so what does he do? The one righteous guy. Because apparently there aren't even ten. <laughs> he waits for them. He watches them. He sees them right away. And he goes over and he says, come stay at my house. Come stay at my house. We're going this way. We're going this way. <laughs> They're like, no, we're going to stay in town square. The Lord sent us to do a job. <laughs> we're going to find out what everybody's being like. But he finally convinces them. And then what does he do when they get there? Washes their feet. Gives them something to wash their feet with. Same thing, right? Hospitality. He's protecting them. He's taking care of them. And then he goes on to offer him food, them food, and everything else. And did this cost Lot anything? Great risk, right? Because he knew what everybody else in Sodom was going to be up to. What do the men of Sodom do? They, of course, simply seek to prey on these seeming, seemingly, <laughs> seemingly vulnerable men. This was an example of inhospitality at its worst. Not only did they just ignore foreigners that came into their town, they full-on exploited them. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, as much as it gets usurped and pulled into a different direction to deal with one specific topic, that if there was one specific topic it should be, should be addressing, it's hospitality. In that big picture, that hospitality that as Lot did risks an awful lot to protect vulnerable people. And on the flip side of a people who just don't give a rip about the needs of vulnerable people in our world and in their communities. So maybe we walk away from this and we just say, okay, Okay, I get it. Let's, uh, let's just not be oppressive. 
but do we really have to go so far as to do good <laughs> to people, or can we just seek to not hurt anybody? I am going to leave this aside for tonight in, in the bigger part of reading this text. But Jesus does an interesting thing when he sends out the 12, and he sends them out, and we have it accounted in Matthew and in Luke. He sends them out, the 12, and he sends them out into towns. And they are to go out into towns and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And as they go into that town, if somebody receives what they have to say and receives them, they're supposed to stay in that town. If not, if they do not receive them, remember what they're supposed to do? Shake the dust off of their feet. Why do you have dust on your feet? Because nobody offered to wash your feet or offered you anything to wash. Another reason, it's a term of contempt, a term of judgment. And the whole idea is that there wasn't anybody here who actually gave a rip about me. I walked into your town. I was a stranger. You didn't offer me anything. You didn't even offer me anything to wash my feet. I'm shaking the dust from my feet, and I'm moving on. So here, it's not just a matter of, well, they didn't do them any harm. It's a matter of, they didn't do them any good. They didn't receive them. They didn't welcome them in. Jesus says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet. It's the basic, the basic litmus test. Hospitality. Basic litmus test of a righteous person. Do you see vulnerable people around you and care enough to do anything? Hospitality isn't a simple matter. It's not just offering niceties. And it's not just simply not exploiting people. It's a matter of accepting people. And accepting the call to protect those who can't protect themselves. There are a lot of reasons I know to say no to this kind of hospitality. I know that there are lots of reasons that we come up with to say no because it's, it requires risk. We don't like risk. Hospitality requires a lot of it sometimes, right? I mean, we live in like an insurance culture where risk is mitigated and managed, and we try and limit every risk we possibly can so that our lives aren't too inconvenienced or so somebody doesn't have to pay out too much money. And unfortunately, when that happens, forces other than God dictate what risks are just too risky. And I get that we are fearful. We're a fearful people. And hospitality calls us to overcome fear. It's not like hospitality just says, oh, there's not going to be any fear involved. There's going to be some fear involved. You're going to have some trepidation, some concern, some like, I don't know if this is okay. Right, Corey? Corey calls me as I'm preparing this message. She calls me last week, and I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but she's like, hey, I don't even remember where you were. It doesn't matter. She's like in a parking lot, and she's like, hey, so here's the deal. I just met this family. They have two, they have, it's a husband and a wife and their son. And she's like, they're homeless. They're really nice. They just came to town. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And what, could, what should we do? She's like, I got to do something, right? They're like really nice couple. And so, uh, so it just so happens that I'm going to make this story fast. Cat ends up like in the parking lot just about the same time. 
And so they all get together and they powwow and they talk. And Corey has done this numerous times before. And some people will say she's absolutely nuts. And yeah, she probably is, but that's all good because God calls us to be a little crazy. Um, she's like, I think that I just need to let these people come and stay at my house. And so guess where these people are? They're staying at Corey's house. And like the most, I know, right? But it isn't as if there isn't any risk, right? And it isn't as if there isn't any fear. And it isn't as if it's just by Corey's strength that Corey's able to do something like that, right? I mean, you, you got to be prayerful. It's not like doing some of those kind of seemingly crazy things doesn't mean that we're just stupid. It's not like if some guy knocks at my door and he's got a machete and blood all over his face, and he's like, can I stay there, right? And I'll be like, oh, sure, buy in. You know, like, it's not that. I mean, it requires some discernment. It requires some... <laughs> I know, we had somebody give us a machete last week. <laughs> but we can't let fear rule us. We can't. We can't let fear rule us. I mean, if it does, we won't show this radical form of hospitality that God calls us to. Just because you have fear does not mean that you have to allow it to dictate your life. But it certainly doesn't mean just because that you might have fear that you get to escape the responsibilities of showing hospitality. If, if you just stopped and thought about it, like if we, if we didn't do anything we fear, we really wouldn't do much. I would be single without kids. <laughs> I can promise you that right now. <laughs> And then some of the things that we do that we don't even think about, just how dangerous they are, like whizzing by somebody on a, on a highway at like 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, four feet apart, and we don't even think about it, right? It's like 120 miles an hour, head-on collision. We don't even think, like we should be terrified to drive down a two-lane highway. Well, some people are, but I'm just saying. But we're not, because we just have gotten kind of used to it. And we, we, we have to overcome these fears. And, and here's the, golly, I don't want to, oh, really try and hear me on this. Like, fear, unfortunately, is manipulated. We're manipulated with fear. We have to wise up about that. We cannot let fear and people manipulate us with fear. We can't let people paint false narratives for us about how the whole world is going to fall apart if we're nice to people. We can't. Because it isn't. Well, any more than it already is, right? <laughs> we can't. We can't. Because the thing is, is like we have enough real fears that we have to overcome. But people regularly, more and more and more, on a daily basis, want to manipulate situations, exploit situations, exaggerate situations, and then make them seem as if hospitality and caring about people and receiving people and loving people is just too damn risky. can't do that. I made a post on Facebook thanking, in much, in, in much retrospect, the Egyptians that received Jesus and his family. Okay. Have you ever thought, stopped and thought about that story for a second? So like, Jesus, a Hebrew baby, Mary and Joseph are Hebrew people. They're fleeing the tyranny of their own king, Herod, the great, the not-so-great-great, because he's killing every baby that's two years old and younger in Bethlehem 
where Jesus and Mary and Joseph are, are because he's wanting to take out the supposed inheritor of his throne. She succeeds in killing many, but Jesus and his family flee, or his family take Jesus and flee to Egypt. And somebody in Egypt received these Hebrew people. We're talking post-exile. We're talking like after the ten plagues are rained down on the Egyptians. You think maybe somebody was thinking, I don't know if it's such a good idea <laughs> to let this family come in whose own king is trying to kill them? And we're going to, that's a little too much risk. <laughs> that's right. There is great risk in the hospitality that the scriptures call us to. Period. There is. Don't let people exaggerate the fear. though, Because we do serve a God who calls us to sacrifice ourselves. Be in, in our in our in our willingness and our desires to glorify the God who cares about the poor, the powerless, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, people that are being exploited. So what do we do? What do we do today? So I think it's maybe simple and really difficult. Embrace this call to show hospitality. I mean, embrace it. Like, like, I'm not saying you just have to just jump in like Corey does sometimes, right? Like, like that's, that's crazy, you know. <laughs> but, like, at least name that you are supposed to, right? Like, at least name that you're supposed to do that. At least name that we as a people, as a society, are supposed to do that. When we see people that are being treated poorly and exploited, we are supposed to risk to receive them. I mean, I, I think back to stories that you hear about people escaping Nazi Germany and going to towns outside of Germany that are in, in these little communities made up primarily of Christians that are hiding Jews. Years later, people came and asked them, like, wow, well, that was risky. And many of those communities said, what? We didn't even think about it. That's just what you do. That's just what, we've lost that lost that? Do we not trust that there is a God? Do we not trust that death has been overcome? Do we not trust that we can be killed ourselves and still live, have eternal life? Do we really, like, do we have that big of faith? Because I'll tell you, this world needs that big of faith on the part of the church. So we have to embrace this call to show that hospitality. We have to recognize that there is risk, face our fears, have faith, trust God, throw ourselves on our knees. And then we have to really just listen to the narratives that are swirling around in our culture and think deeply about the things that people tell us to be fearful about. Really think deeply. When you see something scroll across Facebook, or you see something on the news and they're like, oh, be very afraid. Really stop and think about what's really going on there really need to be afraid? And the last thing is <laughs> uh, just have some compassion. Right? Try and put yourself in people's situations. 
have some compassion. Heavenly Father, oh my goodness, you call us to some huge things. You call us to some things that are going to make us uncomfortable. You call us to some things that require us to maybe change some things in our lives. But I know that you are the God that can equip us. I ask that you, as we just continue to journey into this stuff of community, that you would give us wisdom and discernment, knowing that, that huh, there are situations we need to be careful about. But don't let us just simply say no to anything because we feel like there's a little bit of risk. Holy Spirit, we, we need you to lead and guide us. We need you to help us through our fears, through our things that just grip us, that keep us from being able to move forward. And that's not just on the topic of hospitality. And I just feel, Lord Jesus, like praying for this community right now. Wherever people are, where they're just gripped by any kind of fear whether it's the fear that keeps them from showing hospitality or whether it's the fear that just keeps them from wanting to get out of bed in the morning or the fear that keeps them from being able to sort out relationships with their family or with their children or whatever fear is gripping people right now. I just pray, Heavenly Father, that you would just do a work of liberation in this room right now and that you would free people from the bondage of fear. That you would build faith in us. That you would Help us to risk and see how you show up in the powerful things that you do. And we trust you, Jesus. We, we trust you with our lives. We trust you with our whole lives. Not, not, not just little bits of it, but we, we really seek to grow in doing, in doing it and trusting you with everything, knowing that, that to, to live is Christ. But to die is gain. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of the risk of dying in the midst of doing good helps straighten us out, Jesus. Let us be willing to die in the doing of good. We love you. Thank you that you are the one who has overcome death. Praise you that we find life in you. Thank you.